The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So it's nice to be with everybody this morning here at our virtual Common Ground. I think I know many of you, most of you, but some of you may be new. So I'm Mark Nunberg, um, along with Shelley Graff, we're the two staff Dharma teachers at Kamagon Meditation Center. And uh, I'm going to be going on retreat starting late tomorrow afternoon, but I'm here now and I'll be back then on Sunday, December, I believe it's the 20th. So I've been finishing now the last couple of weeks this series of talks on the Buddhist teachings on impermanence and really more generally the path of awakening. And uh, the basic, you know, situation we're in is the mind is misperceiving, misunderstanding this experience of contact, of experience, and so then relates to our moment-to-moment experience, this activity of the body and mind with greed, hatred, and delusion. Sometimes the greed, hatred, and delusion is very obvious, but just as we all know, most of the time we may be greedy, we may be aversive or fearful, we may be distracted or in denial, but doesn't mean we'll know it, right? So that's sort of the nature of greed, hatred, and delusion as animating forces. And remember, it's not always like full rage as anger or full lust as greed or denial as delusion, right? They're very subtle manifestations of greed, hatred, and delusion. But they're mostly the animating forces of our life. Even when we're doing wholesome, so-called wholesome stuff, we're taking care of somebody. But doesn't mean that that activity isn't affected by greed or affected by fear. Your suffering is bothering me, so I'm going to really help you because it's irritating me that you're suffering, right? Now, we don't say that out loud, hopefully, and we often don't even recognize it internally, but that doesn't mean that that sort of activity of taking care of somebody isn't affected by aversion. I mean, something simple like when you feed your dog. You may love your dog. You may really appreciate that you have food to feed your dog, but you still might be irritated that you have to feed your dog. Right, And in a sense, hate that you have this obligation or that you have to fulfill this obligation now because the dog won't leave you alone. Right, So, so much of our ordinary activity in life is really contaminated. And it's really our job as we stabilize present moment awareness to realize how oppressive it is for us to be living our life where it's mostly animated like the motivating force of action, of doing, including the doing of thinking. So not just outward doing, but even our thoughts or words, that most of that is animated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And we can recognize it because it hurts. It's oppressive. When, but because, you know, because we're living in this oppressive way, oppressed way, we don't realize how oppressive it is. <laughs> When we're hurting, we don't necessarily realize it's hurting because we've been hurting a long time. And it's sort of like 
the, the new normal hurting, being oppressed by greed, hatred, and delusion, so it doesn't stand out. One of the real benefits of being able to touch into moments and then over time more uh, longer periods of time of contentment is that then the oppressiveness of greed, hatred, and delusion, it really starts to stand out when we know the feeling of contentment. And that deeper flavor of the heart, the dispassion, which we have to have some humility. We may not really fully yet understand what dispassion is, but it's a very beautiful and enlivening state of happiness. And when the heart is in that place of not needing, not fearing, being dispassionate, being having some space from greed, hatred, and delusion, then greed, hatred, and delusion really stand out. So when it re-emerges because of you know habit or something triggers it, boy, it really stands out. Here's a fun passage from one of the suttas, the discourses, and this involves... Um, some younger monastics at the time of the Buddha. And they were doing their practice, and then Mara shows up. Now, a lot of you know, but Mara is sort of the personification, both internally, but also, in a sense, externally, the personification of ignorance and greed, hatred, and delusion, sort of like the seductress that causes the mind to go back to its craving ways, its relating in ways that are harmful and hurtful. So Mara uh, arises for these young monks doing their best and says to them, do not abandon what is visible here and now and run off to distance, distant things, right? So Mara's trying to trick them. Like, uh, don't abandon what's visible here and now. Like, there are sense experiences here and now. You can go find somebody to have sex with, or you can go find a delicious food to eat, or you can, you know, but there are any number of ways for you to pursue a pleasant experience. But, and and he said, don't avoid these really nice things you can get right now and pursue something that's far away, like awakening, Nibbana, Right? And the monks, they had some wisdom. They set back to their own, you know, ignorance. We have abandoned what is distant and run toward what is visible here and now. The Buddha has said, worldly pleasures are distant and of uncertain result, right? They might look enticing and sparkling and like they're going to deliver but we never really get the satisfaction we think we're going to get when we go to the refrigerator or we search the internet for something entertaining. We get just enough to keep us hooked, but never, ever are we fully satisfied by our food, by our sense experiences, whatever it might be. The Buddha has said that worldly pleasures are distant of uncertain result, produce much suffering and despair, and have continual disappointment. But this Dhamma, about the truth, like we were reflecting on contentedness, but this Dhamma is visible here and now, immediate in result, 
inviting one to come and see, guiding one onward, capable of being experienced by the wise. Now you might not know that, but basically what they repeated to themselves when confronted with you know this bad habit, saying, hey, screw this meditation stuff, let's go back into town and play in the delights of the world, whatever that might be for each of them. And what they said back is, no, there's something here and now, visible here and now. And this is, the, like I said, the definition of Dhamma, not the more sort of usual translation of Dhamma as the teachings of the Buddha, but the deeper meaning of Dhamma, which is the underlying truth, that it's visible here and now, right? That it's immediate in result. It invites one to come and see. It draws the heart in. The heart senses when we're opening, like maybe you felt it, it's subtle, so it takes some reorientation of the mind, which is generally oriented towards what's gross, like the pleasure of eating something we like to eat. That's a gross, dense experience. So, it, And we're oriented that way, so it gets our attention. But the more subtle pleasure of contentedness and dispassion we're, it's almost like we're, the mind isn't used to receiving that frequency, attuning to that frequency. Oh yeah, this this feels good. This actually is more satisfying than those gross pleasures. Right? It's a little bit like that with food. You know, um, you know, nachos with the cheese you get out of a jar, <laughs> or something like that. You know. That has its own pleasure associated with it for some people. But, you know, there are other foods that are much more refined and subtle that we can develop a taste for, and that might end up being much more satisfying than foods that are like really salty or really sweet or really sour and kind of hit you with a punch. And you you have that momentary sense, oh, I'm alive because my mouth is on fire or, you know, it's just like this strong flavor. But we can learn to let go of the mind's fixation on intense and gross sense experiences and become more attuned to refined experiences. And even in this movement from sense experience to the pleasure of the mind that doesn't want, right? There's the happiness of getting what we want, and then there's a more refined happiness of not wanting. That's contentment, right? But like how often in our life have we been encouraged to get to know the happiness of not wanting? And immediately, like, look at what comes to our minds when you hear me say the happiness of not wanting. It's like we're sure the Buddha's trying to trick us into some desert of austerity, you know, where we don't get anything. And uh, at least I won't be betrayed when good stuff goes away, but I'm going to be destined to forever live in that desert where nothing interesting happens, nothing intensely pleasurable happens. And it's, boy, it's going to be boring and it's going to be bad, but at least good things won't go away. I mean, that's, 
that's called nihilism, you know, where we think, oh, I'm a human being that appreciates warmth when I'm cold and coolness when I'm hot and sometimes sweet and sometimes sour and human affection. And, but I'm not going to give myself anything. And the Buddha, like you know, in terms of his practice history, he checked out these ascetic practices where he let go of a lot of these ordinary pleasures and saw it and basically taught that is a dead end. Indulging, thinking that sense pleasures are going to deliver any kind of resonant happiness, it's not true. Check it out if you don't believe the Buddha. And then thinking that rejecting sense pleasure goes somewhere, lasting, satisfying, doesn't work. So he rejected both indulging, seeking a life of comfort, but he also rejected seeking a life where the mind is rejecting ordinary sense pleasures. So when good food came his way, he would receive it, and he would eat as much as the body needed to feel good, to be healthy. Someone built him, you know, a nice hut to sleep in, he would sleep in it. If no one built him a nice hut, you know, the monks and nuns would just sleep under the trees. So let me just say that one more time. This is the monk's reply when their own fear about um, orienting toward the happiness of contentment and dispassion, right? Of course, doubt is going to arise because there's so much history embedded in our hearts, you know, these habits of seeking safety and and uh, pleasure through sense experience, that's a deep groove in our heart. So when we experiment, like you go on a Buddhist retreat for a weekend, um, or whatever, like here, you know, on retreat, I don't really eat much food past midday. I might have a little piece of fruit or something like that. Um, but that's a long stretch, you know, from one o'clock until breakfast the next morning to basically not take substantial food. And I just do that as a training. You don't have to do that when you're on retreat. Or, you know, we don't talk very much when we're on retreat. You know, functional speech around preparing the food, things like that. But otherwise, we're not chatting with each other. And, you know, we just simplify our life. And, and of course, my heart is drawn to things that are interesting. I would love to watch a movie or do this or do that when I'm on retreat. But we look at, that's like Mara calling, oh, why are you seeking something far off in the distance, the happiness of dispassion, the happiness of Nibbana, when on your phone you could watch pretty much any movie ever made on your phone, which is 10 feet away from you, you know, or in that fridge, you know, you could find probably something you want to eat, or whatever it might be. You, you've got a car here. You could get in the car and drive home. And then in the city, you can find anything, assuming <laughs> so, you can pay for it. So Mara will call and will try to seduce us. Why are you here on retreat seeking some pleasure that seems so far away? Right? The idea of Nibbana, we hear this teachings on awakening, the 
happiness of non-attachment, realizing the heart free from grasping, right? This is how we talk about it sometimes in the early Buddhist tradition. And it can seem far away. Why not just do something you know is going to make you happy right now? You know, go watch some movie, but first get some chips and some of that cheese in a jar and whatever else you like, <laughs> you know. For me, it would be popcorn with a half a stick of butter <laughs> and a little cayenne right, and a little nutritional yeast and salt. But we each have our own little sort of sense treat that always looks like, oh yeah, if only, then I'd be happy. But I tell you, it isn't that far through the bowl of popcorn before it's like, yeah, I'm going to finish it, but it's not really making me happy anymore. And in fact, the interesting thing you'll notice, and I'm sure a lot of you have noticed this, is we're actually, in a funny way, the mind is more interested in the desiring the popcorn in this example, than actually the pleasure of chewing and tasting and swallowing it. It's just the whole idea of I'm going to have what I want. That idea is quite seductive and juicy in a funny way, more than the actual experience of getting. This is true, um, not always, but often with sexual interactions, right? The idea of a sexual encounter is often much more impactful on the heart than a sexual encounter or a vacation and the planning and the anticipation versus actually sitting there on the beach and thinking, now what? <laughs> oh, I'll order another drink. You know, now what? Oh, I'll go to the store and look for an interesting trashy novel. Now what? <laughs> I'll have another drink. You know, so, but the idea of the vacation and how it's going to solve my problems, that's very seductive. That's, it, it has a real impact in the heart. Another passage from the, the early texts. Whoso has turned to renunciation, turned to dispassion of the mind, is filled with an all-embracing love and freed from thirsting after life. And this is often how the Buddha talks about our life, our mind, when it's animated by greed, hatred, and delusion. It's like the mind is trying to feed its hunger or quench its thirst by consuming experience. So I'm, now this should sound familiar to us, I'm looking for possible experiences I can have with the idea that I'm going to feed something. There's a somebody who's hungry or thirsty who needs to feed on experience. And actually the word tanha, which usually gets translated as clinging, craving, clinging, is it's uh, it the same as the word thirst, thirsting. When we're thirsty, right? So there's that burning So the Buddha says that, uh, you know, the, the way out of this entanglement, we're tangled in an entanglement. And he uses the image like a whirlpool, the samsara whirlpool. 
there's a feedback mechanism where I see sense experience, which is really the mind's interpretation of sense experience. So when I think about what's in the fridge or actually touch or see what's in the fridge or even put in my mouth, even when I'm eating something, it's as much about my thought about what I'm eating and my thought about whether I like it or not than the actual direct, immediate experience of taste, right? So it's always this interaction of name and form. That's what we, the phrase we use in early Buddhism, form being the sort of contact through the five senses and nama, name, it's just like our, the mind's um, perceiving and the feeling that comes up with the perception and the contact and all the mental formations that are added to that experience. There's always this stance between name and form and consciousness. And, it, and the image is like a whirlpool, which has its own integrity. Some of you were on the day-long retreat yesterday. We talked about how um, believable these little self-centered dramas are, these samsaric spinning circles. And when we're in one of these little planning dramas or comparing mind dramas or if only I have this, then I'll be happy drama. If only I get rid of this, then I'll be happy drama. These are these little vortex, these little whirlpools and when we're there, where the mind is in a way transfixed, held by that drama. That's our world. And we always think in that world of spinning, if I, it's uncomfortable, there's stress to thirsting, to being hungry, right? So even when I'm desiring, we don't realize, because on the surface it's a little juicy, oh yeah, when I get that bowl of popcorn, that's going to feel so good. But actually, the state of desiring, if we look at it in a balanced way, is stressful. Because I don't have that popcorn yet. And it's only when I get it will I feel good. Right? So there's this sort of burning, the burning of lust, the grip of hate, the net of delusion, distraction. That's a phrase from the Dhammapada, a really famous, just to talk about these animating forces of greed, hatred, delusion, greed as a burning, hate as a grip in the heart, and delusion, distraction, denial as a net, confusing, illusory net that catches us. And we're in that vortex, and we don't know we're in the vortex. And in the vortex, the only thing we know to get us out of this stressful feeling of desiring, craving, and being identified with the craving is to get something. But that's actually what fuels the spinning of desiring, right, of craving. It keeps the whirlpool, the samsaric whirlpool going. Samsara just means cycles of suffering, stressful cycling, right? And that is the Buddha's description of us ordinary human beings. Some of our samsaric cycling is less intense, less suffering. We call those people, people with good fortune. Some of the samsaric cycling is really overwhelming 
And we say those are people who don't have good fortune and have one bad thing after another. But even people who have angelic conditions, you know, everybody likes them, they have a balanced mind and good circumstances, and even they are spinning in these cycles. It's just that the stress and their cycling is relatively subtle, which means they're not going to be interested in unhooking. So in the Buddhist cosmology, if you're in one of those angelic realms where everything's really good, you have good fortune in life, it might be relatively pleasant for you, but you won't have the proper motivation to take a clear, uh, subtle look at your situation as a living being. And if you're somebody who has really unfortunate conditions, it's also not so easy to practice because we're overwhelmed by the pain of our samsaric spinning. And, and the best place to do this practice is when we have some proximity, some capacity to look at how my ordinary way of being, where I'm feeling the discomfort of being a human being, but my idea of solving it is always to seek a nice experience. So I'm in that loop, but I sense this isn't going anywhere. Like we chanted, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. I am the owner of my, like I inherit <clears throat> my intentional actions. One of the things that's so confusing in this work of the, you know, bringing our awareness to the tangle, being entangled with a tangle, one of the hard things is when we open to the present moment, we're feeling the reverberations of all the choices that have been made to seek to resolve the pain in my heart through another sense experience. And that's, like I said, stressful. And so then, having done that, since the beginning of time, according to the Buddha, you know, taking the wrong turn, then when I just settle in a relatively peaceful way, what do we experience? We experience the uneasiness in our hearts that is the reverberation of having chased our tail for so long. And that's very disorienting. And so what we need to hear from our spiritual elders is, hey, there is a pleasure in being mindful, but it's also, at times, really difficult because we're going to feel the reverberations of all that was set in motion when we weren't so mindful. Have you noticed that in your meditation practice? It's really difficult to be present a lot of the time. And it's not about what we're doing right now. The grip, for example, we feel in the body, the tension we feel in the body, the ache or numbness we might feel in our hearts, the rage that might be burning, the uneasiness of anxiety and fear that might be reverberating deep. 
in subtle ways. That's all the ancient reverberations from everything past. That's what that last reflection, that last remembrance that we chanted at the beginning, right? We are the owners of our karma, heirs to our karma, born out of our karma. Everything I've set in motion of that, I will have to, I am feeling right now because that's what's reverberating. The past literally doesn't exist out there somewhere behind me. So whatever the effects of the past are, they're alive in our so-called body here. When we energetically, it's all right here. Where some of you are in the class that is happening on Thursday nights, a couple times a month on Thursday nights that we're doing in collaboration with Clouds and Water Zen Center, uh, using Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands. And it's really about undoing racialized trauma. So even something like that here in the West, in the United States, the history of racism and all of the harm, and not just the harm to black-bodied people, but all the white-bodied people who uh, express that harm, right? That lives on in us. We are, you know, all of the trauma, all of the hate, all of the fear, all of the violence, all of the receiving of violence and all of the giving of violence, that all lives in our hearts collectively. And it's not just the history of racism in the United States. You know, there's endless amounts of harm that has been done, perpetrated over the, since the beginning of time, right? So there's also been kindness, there's also been love, so when we sit down, we're feeling that. It doesn't mean we're going to feel it specifically, oh, this is that event. You know, even from our own childhood, the reverberation of what we feel in the heart, body, and mind, we don't have to specifically link this feeling with that specific event. It's just it's part of the mis- mismatch of our heart, body, and mind that we feel. And so, so much of the emphasis on developing some stability of awareness, some basic uh, trust in the goodness, the love in the heart, the capacity for appreciation and forgiveness, is so that we have some resilience to stay with what we feel when we sit. And then this uh, intention to be content, this this intention to allow everything to move, what we're feeling in the heart, honey, you have permission to move. What we're feeling in the body, honey, you have permission to move. What we're noticing in the mind, the thinking mind, honey, you have permission to move. Right? We're really, we're trusting that this is how we disentangle from the tangle. We're there, we're intimate, because trying to fix the tangle with you know with some nice experience is what causes the tangle trying to get out of the tangle makes the tangle like thinking we're somebody if i if only i get something add something then there's no tangle that that adds to the tangle thinking i'm somebody who can get out of the tangle 
adds to the tangle. Being intimate with the tangle and realizing this capacity to let everything be felt, be seen, letting everything move. So we're using the pleasure of contentment, dispassion, the letting go of all self selfing. The hook, you know, another way the hook, the Buddha talks about this hook is the second dart. A lot of you have heard this sutta, where when we're hurting, when we are having a more honest awareness of how it feels to be a human being, then the only thing we know what to do with that hurt is to think I need something or I need to get rid of something. And that's what the Buddha calls the second dart, because then that's stressful. This is not okay. If I have that or if I get rid of that, then I'll be... And we kind of put that burden on our shoulders and we feel oppressed because I'm not okay now, I need this. Oops. Okay, I'm back. I'm assuming you can hear me. I just got signed out for some reason. Everyone hear me okay? Great. Let me just read you this uh, quote from the suttas. This is from the Buddha. And uh, first it starts with uh, an angelic being, evidently, putting a riddle to the Buddha. And this is what this angelic being says. There is a tangle within and a tangle without. The world is entangled with a tangle. About that, oh, Gotama. Gotama is the Buddha's family name. So that was one of the words people would use to um, talk to him, Gotama. About that, O Gotama, I ask you, who can disentangle this tangle? And so the Buddha answers in three verses. The first thing he says is, a wise practitioner, established in non-harming, developing the stability of awareness and wisdom, being ardent and prudent, is able to disentangle this tangle. And then the second verse in whom lust, hate, and ignorance, right, greed, hatred, and delusion, has faded away, those influx-free awakened ones, it is in them that the tangle is disentangled. Right, so this is uh, faded away is how the Buddha talks about this um, discernment of the happiness of dispassion. It's a fading away. Oh yeah, I could have popcorn, but I'm really appreciating the happiness of dispassion. So my need for popcorn is fading. doesn't mean popcorn isn't experienced like it's always been experienced by me. The crunchiness, the saltiness, the butteriness. It's just what it is. But the need for it, the attachment is fading because I'm learning to appreciate a more refined and substantial happiness, which is the happiness of non-dependence. And that's the way. It's like letting go happens when the heart has found 
a refuge that's more trustworthy than the refuge of having popcorn. And you can just, of course, substitute any sense pleasure that you know works for you. And then here's the last stanza, where name and form, name and form cease, where name and form ceases, stops without remainder, and also impingement and perception of form. It is here this tangle is cut. So here the Buddha is pointing to really to Nibbana, which, you know, we just hear the information, but it's really useful to hear the information. How the, He doesn't talk a lot about Nibbana. This is one of the places where he's talking about it in terms of name and form. So the mind, we don't really know our mind without it being entangled in name and form, Right? So the mind we know is always involved in the world of name and form. Experience and our ideas about experience. This is being known. So Nibbana is described as the mind, realizing the mind that isn't grasping in any way name and form. So it's a mind, in a sense, that has been released from the its habit of gripping and reacting to name and form. So we know when the mind's grip, attachment to name and form has lessened, right? We know that experience, just like we know the experience when the grip on name and form is really intense and it hurts. We have a lot of attachment, we know that. We know when it lessens. And we wanna have a lot of humility and interest about just following that thread like letting the mind, in a sense, die before it dies. Letting, because we're dying to this grip. We're just letting that. And the way that happens is learning to appreciate the pleasure of dispassion, the pleasure of disenchantment, the peace of non-drama, the peace of selfing, Really, the self-centered drama is really dissipating, quieting. And just let that process of appreciating more subtle peace go where it's going to go. Trusting it, learning to trust it all the way. So it's like nobody forces us into this place of letting go. It's a natural process of the mind beginning to do what we did during the guided sit this morning, which is... I'm going to take a half an hour and I'm going to practice keeping in mind the very real but subtle pleasure of contentedness. Just keeping it in mind, keep it in mind, and just see where it goes. See how it becomes more refined, more peaceful, more healing, more trustworthy, more empty of selfing, of self-centeredness. But it's never a forced thing which can always feel, you know, we'll get pushback from the mind, like you're trying to extinguish me. I don't like that. But there isn't an extinguishing of anybody. It's just a waking up to what this is. That's really important to understand because these terms we find in Buddhism, like emptiness, can really sound like somebody's trying to get rid of me and I don't like it. <laughs> you know, that's not what I signed up for. I, I came for stress reduction. And now they talk about 
you know, the absence of self. Get away from me. <laughs> no, it's really about realizing the limitation of sense pleasure. Still, we're going to play in that world. We're going to put a sweater on when we're cold, etc. But we're going to allow for a natural withdrawing of the dependence because we see the limitations of sense pleasure. Luckily, there's another pleasure to explore. Contentment, dispassion, letting go, the peace and freedom of the absence of selfing, of self-centered drama animated by greed, hate, and delusion. We'll get taste of that in a really refined state of concentration. Craving, greed, hate, and delusion gets really quiet, even in moments not there. And then the mind has a taste. Oh, this is the taste of freedom that the Buddha was pointing to. But the latent tendency to go back to craving, that hasn't been uprooted. So we're back in our crazy world of thinking popcorn's going to do it for us. <laughs> really nice to be with everyone this morning. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.